0: I'm April Vokey, and you are listening to Anchored, my chance to speak with some of the most influential people involved in the fishing world today. Join me as I travel to sit face-to-face with my guests in their own homes to learn more about their careers, opinions, history, relationships, and life both on and off the water. This episode is brought to you by Luke Weiser Bamboo Fly Rods. Each of Luke's rods is handcrafted and built with only the best in craftsmanship and materials. There's simply no limit to the detail he can put into custom orders. Luke has spent years refining his skills, and he's got an incredible talent for building things. But mostly, he's the kind of guy that you trust because he knows there's both a right way and a wrong way to do something. I personally trout fish with one of Luke's rods, and I can honestly say that it's a work of art, both in my home and on the water. Find out more about Luke at www.lukewiser.com. Mark Johnstad grew up in Montana with a fly rod in his hand. He first traveled to Mongolia in 1991, where he lived for several years to help establish the protected area. He has been back almost every year since. Mark is at the forefront of taming conservation and helped found Mongolia River Outfitters, a community and environmental-driven organization that uses fly fishing to bring support to the fishery. I traveled to Mongolia to experience the incredible country and met up with Mark while I was there. In this episode of Anchored, we sit down in my yurt to stay warm by the fire and to discuss the incredibly inspiring story behind Mongolia.
1: I'm from Montana. I was actually born in Minnesota. My dad was a Lutheran minister, um, but then he moved to Montana when I was two and a half. So I grew up in the Shields Valley, so Park County, Will Sal, Livingston. Most people know Livingston because of the Yellowstone. So
0: And you fished growing up? Yeah, a lot. A lot, yes. So we've just spent the week together. I've been hanging out with you and your son, Cooper. And you get like dad of the year award. (laughs) For real, it's unbelievable. So was your father with you like you are with Cooper? Were you guys really outdoorsy?
1: Yeah, very much. You know, a a typical outdoor enthusiast story. Mm -hmm. You know, father who loved to fish and hunt and a kid who loved his dad and tagged along with his dad in the the woods of Montana.
0: Okay, so then you go to college. I went to a little school
1: called St. Olaf College. It's in Northfield, Minnesota. Okay. And uh, I started out with a, I don't know, kind of, Messed around with a bunch of different majors and ended up with a stunning major in English literature with a minor in Middle Eastern studies. Oh,
0: you did do that. <laughs> I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have picked you for that. Okay, yeah, right. that would you explain know. that vocabulary that I noticed the first day. Of- well,
1: it explained the Garrison Keillor lack of a job, right? Okay, you know, like, very home companion English majors
0: jokes anyway. Yeah. Well, what, Yeah, but so I mean, how did you? Well, I'll let you tell me the story because well, typically, usually when people major in English literature. They, they have no job, they're a, have,
1: or they, yeah. they're a waiter or a, a fish. fishing guide, job.
0: right? So, <laughs> and you are none of those things. No. Um, what did you end up doing after college? Well, it was
1: sort of my college experience that sort of launched me on the international path. Because when I was a sophomore, I went to school at Barzay University and Hebrew University. So I lived in the old city of Jerusalem for about six, seven months, and. Uh, and went to school in the Middle East and then for my senior year I went to school at Cambridge in England and um, so from kind of from college age I started spreading my wings Montana was a, a much different place when I was growing up I mean now everybody knows Montana's you know the land of the horse whisperer a river runs right. through it right, right, you know all that stuff and and when I was growing up Montana was two lane highways and and cowboys and rural and I love it I, I'm very nostalgic for that Montana, um, it's it's disappearing too quickly. But uh, most Montana kids at that time, at least my peers, you know, they wanted to get out, mm-hmm. and they wanted to figure a way to get out and see the the, the bigger world. And so I did, and then I you know struggled to find a way back. Montana. It's kind of a typical story.
0: Okay, so after school in the Middle East, mm-hmm. and sorry, after Cambridge. Yeah, whatever. Mm-hmm. What was your next career?
1: Did the the fishing thing up in Alaska for a few summers. I was a ski bum in Vale. I taught skiing in Vale for three or four years. Spent a couple summers doing a lot of time up on the Navajo Reservation, working horses. Uh, traveled around Central America a little bit and. And uh, eventually, I ended up out in Washington, D.C., working as a lobbyist for a consortium of of NGOs. I worked on Capitol Hill, but I worked primarily, uh, well, directly out of the offices of the Sierra Club. And so, that was what I did during that period. And what was that period from... Oh, I don't know, like mid-20s.
0: Okay, then what happens?
1: Yeah, gosh. Uh, Then Mongolia starts coming into the picture. So, about 1990, fall of 1990... Um, I started thinking that I needed to, to figure out a career path that was more substantial. I had a really good mentor at the, at the club, and, and uh, he said, Mark, you know, you're doing a great job here at Capitol Hill working on Alaska issues, whatever, but you, you need to get an advanced degree because there's going to come a time in your career when it's, you know, you're competing Against somebody else for something, and if you don't have an advanced degree, you know, you're probably gonna lose. And you're young enough, go go. And I turned my options English literature major, <laughs> ski bum, you know,
0: whatever. And uh, you went back to school for music, law no. school, you know.
1: <laughs> <Just kidding>. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, my only choice is law school, yeah. right? They'll take anybody, <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but, you But that was my my, I've got this, you know, she's passed now, but this darling. Amazing uh, grandmother, Swedish Baptist, very conservative, and but would never say a bad thing about anybody. And I told her, "Grandma, I'm gonna, I'm gonna go to law school." And she looked at me. and She goes, "You know, for her, a lawyer is like a failure, right? If you need a <laughs> lawyer, you have failed in something in your life. You can't settle your own argument, or you're in trouble with the law. You failed, right?" And so, Grandma looks at me. She thinks for a second. She goes, "Well, I suppose every profession needs a few good people."
0: Aww. <laughs> Well, that's that's kind and in a backhanded sort in of a, in the way. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, God bless
1: her. <laughs> right. So, anyway, so so I looked around and and it was like, law school is it? Took the LSAT. Did surprisingly well at filling in the little ovals back when one filled in. I Don't even know if you do ovals anymore. But anyway, I filled in the little ovals. Did well could kind of pick my school. I wanted to go into um, conservation law. I, I didn't oh, okay. want to do regular law. I wanted to do environmental law of some sort.
0: Why did that interest you then?
1: You know, I'd spent, you know, growing up in, in Montana, and I'd spent so much of sort of my late teens to mid-twenties traveling around the world. I did a bunch of stuff down in Central America and whatnot by then. Just buzzing around, and I was just seeing the wild slowly sucked out of the West in in, in particular. And so I I was kind of sappy to say it, but I mean, that's really become the the guiding light, the the purpose in my existence mm-hmm. is how does one live in a way to help conserve the last vestiges of wild, of, of open space that are remaining on this quickly shrinking globe.
0: And after spending a week with you, I totally believe you. <laughs> I mean, if this was day one of us hanging out, and this is why I was kind of looking forward to doing this podcast, at the end of the week kind of looking forward come on yeah looking forward. I've this been like looking forward six to it, days of like okay we're gonna do it tonight No, nope, yeah. we're gonna do it tomorrow because I wanted to get a better feel for you first sure. and I believe you I really especially with the conservation stuff I always like to kind of feel you guys out a bit is he legit is he sincere
1: <laughs> and, I, and I
0: genuinely 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 see that your heart is in the right place well, so nice. let's explain to the listeners so right now we are in Mongolia Mm. We have just finished eight days of rafting. Yeah, seven, seven, eight days on the water. Yeah, we're sitting in our gear. Some people call it a yurt. We've got the wood stove going. We've got a bottle of wine. And we're going to talk about Mongolia now, if that's cool. Absolutely. Can you tell me from the timeline where you go from from law into Mongolia? Good. Well, they
1: kind of got all mixed up together. So, like I said, 1990, Mongolia was just opening up. I wanted to do to a. Who, when
0: you say opening up to who?
1: To Westerners, the to walls Westerners. were coming down. The you know, East, the, the German, the wall between East and West Germany was mm-hmm. was collapsing. The Berlin Wall, the Soviet Union was was collapsing. And Mongolia was swept up in that same political sea change. And uh, as I mentioned, I was in Washington D.C. and one of my housemates um, there. Uh, I wanted to do. You know, I grew up on a horse and in Montana and, and I wanted to kind of do one last big adventure before I ended up going to law school. You know, it's like going to law school for me. It was like, you know, it's like buying a, it's like a mortgage for your head. Yeah. You know? yeah. And I was afraid the only way I was going to be able to pay that mortgage back was by becoming an attorney. I thought, Oh, this is, this is it, man. Better do one last hurrah. So I was going to take camels and, and horses across from Qi'an to Kashgar, go across Western China. And, uh, one of my housemates said, "No, no, 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 no! You know, don't don't do that. You should check out Mongolia." And I'd heard about Mongolia. My my mother used to threaten me with going to Outer Mongolia if I didn't do the right thing. And and I'd thought about it, but not in any sort of seriousness. So back then, people would go to the thing called the library. You know, it was fun because I was at the library. I was able to go to the Library of Congress, and I went to the Library of Congress. And, and up in up and up until the you know the nineteen thirties, nineteen forties, nineteen thirties, there was. Pretty good, like the Roy Chapman Andrews expeditions. There was lots of documentation on Mongolia. It sounded like this fantastic place. It sounded like everything that Montana was or once was or romantically was. Mm-hmm. Then there was nothing until, like, 1967. Uh, William O. Douglas is a Supreme Court justice in the U.S. He'd actually been to Mongolia with his wife and wrote a National Geographic article about Mongolia. It's, it's great. I have a copy, you know. Then nothing. Then it sort of dropped off the the, the, the face of the earth. And and you so, don't mean
0: fishing literature. You just mean
1: – No, literature, literature. In yeah, general. Yeah, because Mongolia was behind the Iron Curtain. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: But what I read was fascinating. Big mountains, bears, rivers, desert, nomadic people living on horseback. It's like, yeah, this is my kind of place. I'm going to check it out. So I started digging digging more. And at that point, you needed an invitation to get to Mongolia. And so – From? From the government. Okay. And so I was fortunate enough to be in D.C. again, you know, Montana kid in D.C., and so I sort of applied my lobbying skills. And they didn't have an embassy at the time, but they had a, a consulate. So I called the, the consulate, the first secretary, arranged to have him out for lunch, took him out for lunch with, with his interpreter, who sat around, chatted, and I said, hey, I, you know, tell me about your country, and, and I'm really curious about it, and I'd like to go, and, you know, what can I do to help? And this is what I do, and I, I've been working on public lands management and know a little bit about conservation stuff, and maybe that's something that I can help you with. And he's like, yeah, this is very interesting. I can put you in touch with some friends. Long story short, I ended up getting an invitation to go to Mongolia. That's summer of 1991.
0: Oh, wow. That's a long time ago. Oh, thank you. Were <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> For the record... I was 16. Okay, yeah. <laughs> what were the conservation issues back then?
1: I had no idea, you know. You just I didn't, know, I, I, didn't I, I didn't, no one knew anything about Mongolia, you know, I just, I talked to them a little bit, but he's like, okay, I'll give you an invitation, and you can go and, and talk to people, and so um, I ended up getting an invitation, sort of a joint invitation from the Ministry of Nature and Environment, and this... And they had an NGO-type things back then. And this is the Mongolian Association for the Conservation of Nature and Environment, MAKNI. And everybody, it's a long story. Everybody had to be a member of this thing. It was an old Soviet like a club. Okay. And uh, I got over here, and one of, another mentor, a guy named Dr. Batjargal, um, who's just become a, a very, very, very close personal friend over the years, he was the Minister of Environment and really took me under his wing. It was new and exciting times. There were no foreigners here. Is, they were changing from this, this communist government into a democracy, a fledgling democracy. It was frontier days.
0: How exciting.
1: It was. And in the 90s, too. <laughs> in the 90s. Yes. And in the
0: 90s. Well, no. You know what I mean? It's not like this is in the 30s. It's, it's oh, like right. modern day. Yeah, And here you are in this place that's going through all these crazy... Absolutely. Changes. It's no, really exciting.
1: It's a big privilege. Yeah, yeah. It's a privilege. And you're Very not personal. thinking you're
0: not thinking fishing at this point. You're just not simply all. thinking
1: no, I'm thinking horseback ride. Yeah, okay. I'm thinking I want to ride across this country and take three and a half months and ride a horse from the east to the west before I have to enter the the cauldron of law school. Yeah, no, that's this all I is wanted. So cool, Mark. Okay, keep going. Anyway, so I, I talked to the uh, kind of the Gospel According to Mirror for a couple weeks. I said, Doctor B, this is you know, what are what are your issues? What can you anticipate? You know, what's going down? And and, uh, and at the end, I said, okay, I'll, I'll try to put a grant proposal together for you. To get some money from the U.S. government or a funder or something to do a public lands manager trading program in the U.S. So you can you know, generate some exposure and understanding about you know how conservation operates within a democratic society because they had no experience with that. And he said, like, great – and I said, "Okay, well, thank you very much. It's been a lovely couple of weeks. Um, I've got to go now because I've got all my tack. I had a saddle and a pack saddle, and I have three and a half months worth of dry- freeze-dried food. I got to take off and go ride horses across your country now." And Doctor B looked at me and he goes, "What?" He Goes, "Yeah, yeah." It, it, he just started laughing. He's, he's, you know, his English wasn't very good at that point. You know, we were with a translator. And it's like, "Oh, you know, basically, oh, little boy, oh. you were so silly. Oh. You know, you can't ride across. You're my responsibility." You know, you're here on my invitation. At that point, you actually needed a permit to leave the city boundaries of Bator. A foreigner could not leave the city boundaries of Bator without a permit, and there were check stations. Oh my were transitional God. periods. It was fun. But he goes, I tell you what. And they had protected areas. They had 13 small protected areas, some of them established for 150 years as sort of hunting zones or hunting players. He goes, I like your idea of this modern-day protected area system and this idea of, of sort of, you know, getting the best bits of land in the country under some sort of protected status as quickly as possible. Mm-hmm. And so I said, tell you what, and this is where it gets a little funny, you can be my assistant, my international expert, and let's look at some of these places and then you can give me your advice as to whether or not this should be a protected area or not be a protected area. It will cover all your expenses. So you can imagine the, minister, the government of Mongolia basically covering all of my expenses. And things that would never happen now. But uh, there was devaluation issues and monetary issues. They had cash.
0: And how old were you at this point?
1: I was younger than now. I was 26 years younger than I am now. Smart Alec. No. So, People I, need to know
0: because how old are you? You're I'm
1: 52. 52. Yeah, yeah.
0: Okay. So you're still, you were a really young man when all this was happening.
1: I was, yeah, yeah, cherubic. So I said, fine, let's do that. And so Dr. B and I would sit down, and we would, he would say, this is a pretty area. And so I would get on a little putt-putt plane, and I'd fly as far as I could, and I'd get on a horse, and I'd ride around on a horse for a couple weeks, and I'd come back, and I'd say, gosh, that was really a really pretty place. And we'd have talks with the local communities and stuff like that. we'd say, okay, that one, that's a, that's a good place to make a protected area. That
0: one, that's a good place. So we ended up... Protected from what, though? National parks. But just national parks. Were there concerns at that point?
1: Absolutely. What was it? Absolutely poaching.
0: Was it mining? What was so, the big?
1: and all of them came to fruition. Okay. We knew, everyone knew, the Mongolians knew, that once the communist system collapsed and there was this huge transitional period, which they're still going through, frankly, mm-hmm. to figure out what capitalism is. It's the same story as Russia or Kazakhstan or any of the old CIS countries. Central. Central. Asian republics. They've all gone through these issues where democracy came through and a government, in many ways communism was good for conservation. Um, You you had a centralized government that had an authoritarian, a strong control over resource use and resource access, and they were able to manage things. All of a sudden you have democracy, capitalism that comes through, which is great, you know, but... You have a huge incentive to exploit resources for personal gain and you have a way to exploit resources for personal gain. And yet you do not have the uh, regulatory environment, the enabling environment in place to manage uh, the use and access uh, to those resources in a way that's mm, sustainable. Right. So if all of those things came to fruition. So as soon as, like starting in the early 1990s, the first phase was poaching. So there was a big issue with the aphrodisiac market, particularly with the Chinese. So you saw the national herd of of elk, you know, nine out of the ten, I mean, whatever. This country had huge elk, and it it was actually fairly big business to come here and, and, and hunt trophy elk. Population went from somewhere, oh. estimates, between 150 to 200,000 um, head of elk down to 20,000 head of elk in a 10-year period.
0: Ooh, that's Poached out a for the
1: aphrodisiac market. Yeah. Started with the males in velvet. Then it went to females, genitalia, tails, wow. the whole thing. So just red deer alone plummets. You also have exploitation of forest resources, and you've seen the, the forest here is really slow to regenerate. You've mm-hmm. got you know eight months of winter, seven months of winter. You know the average temperature in Ulaanbaatar is below zero. You know it's cold, so regen is takes a long time. You cut down a tree, it takes a long time for that tree to come back. Then they discovered gold, you know, and we know lots of other resources: platinum, yeah. uranium, coal, copper, all of which is fine. If you have the regulatory environment in place to make sure that it's managed properly, which they did not. Mm -hmm. So by coming in and trying to establish an assembly of protected areas, places with higher biodiversity conservation value, higher biodiversity uh, numbers, whether it's Argali or Snow Leopard or... or, or from sacred falcons, or the, you know the huge migrating herds. There's a you know, herd of a million to two million, depends on who you ask. You know antelope, gazelle that migrate on the the eastern steppe. It's you know equivalent to the Serengeti or greater. You know, bears, goby bear, there's a huge number of important species here. Everything's
0: and here. I was shocked to see that. Yeah. You said camels are even indigenous here.
1: Wild camels, half the guy.
0: Yeah. So, so cool. in, the,
1: in the great goby here
0: and then on the other side in China. And there's there's brown bears and there's boar and there's, like you said, there's the elk and there's this and There's other wolves deer and with a fang, moose with and, and
1: musk deer and yeah. roe deer and the list is long. Yeah. yeah. So the idea of trying to capture an assembly of protected areas that represent the best of that biodiversity conservation um, picture, as early as possible, was a really smart idea of Dr. Bachargo. Very smart idea. And whatever I could do to help make that happen, awesome. It was good. Good. It was great fun. So that's that's how things got started in Mongolia. And then I ended up, mm -hmm, yes?
0: But what about the fishing? I mean... You're a fisherman at heart. Sure. Were you not curious about what that was like?
1: Boy, that first summer, I fed myself with a lot of fish. You did? Yeah, because there was nothing but mutton. It, this this country was... The, the, uh, no one has an understanding. I mean, you go to Ulaanbaatar now and you see Lamborghinis and Porsches and all this other stuff because they've had this great big gold party, right? I or still or see a lot minerals. of mutton on the menu. Yeah, well, that's, that's the favorite food, you know, nationally. But... It's hard. It's very difficult to explain to someone who is coming to Mongolia for the first time what Mongolia was like in 1991.
0: Yeah, yeah. no
1: cars on the street, no groceries in the grocery store. One bottle of Soviet-era soda, no Coke. Maybe a cabbage, maybe some potatoes. Nothing. Two hotels in the town. Two bars in the two bars in the town. I think My interpreter one morning was late for for uh, for a meeting. Wonderful guy, Piyombo, and uh, he was very punctual. And, and he you know he'd been in Afghanistan in the Soviet era, so he was a little twitchy. And mm, like I said, never late. And I was staying in this Soviet era hotel, one of the two. And, and I'm waiting in the lobby, and it's like an hour late. And Piyombo shows there? up, and he's like, "Oh, I'm so sorry, Mister Mark." It's like, "What? What's wrong?" Was, oh, there's a very important cultural said, oh, well, what is it? They're, they're showing a, a movie of, of the West, and we've never seen such a thing, and they're showing everything about the West, and we can see how people in the West live and how they eat and how their families are, and it's a great cultural understanding, but they're showing it in a marathon, and so it's many hours every night. I said, well, that's fascinating. Said, What's the name of this this, this program? I'm Maybe here. I'll watch it. He goes, it's called Dallas.
0: No. Oh, that's so bad. That's <laughs> okay. so bad. is awesome? <laughs> no. <laughs> it's awful. <laughs> it's awesome. Wow. Okay. Okay. So, so,
1: I mean, that's what it was like now. Now you go to Ulaanbaatar, and as you've yeah. seen, I mean, it's as modern as anything. There's Louis Vuitton stores. It's yeah, all sorts surreal. of craziness. Yeah. It's, it's a hodgepodge. It's a mix. You can still see a glimpse of the old and and a lot of the new. Yeah. But it's not.
0: Yeah. Maroon. Maroon.
1: Yeah, a little tiny.
0: It it felt a little more like what I expected Mongolia to be like.
1: Maroons changed dramatically. However, that airport is that's the first airport I ever flew into in 1991. Really. Yeah, because I came. This is the first area I went up to Lake Kusco to help put that protected Ah. area together.
0: So, with this protected area, what about the people? I mean, when I think nomadic people, I think Mm Mongolians. Yeah, sure. Is that a safe? Is that a fair assessment? Sure. What percent you know, of, of people in Mongolia do you think are nomadic? I know that's a hard question. No,
1: it's not that hard because you, the total population, when I first came here, the total population has grown dramatically. You know, the total population was a million to a million and a half people when I first shut up. Now we're pushing close to three million. Okay. And most of the population lives in Ulaanbaatar. There's two okay. Mongolias there's okay. Ulaanbaatar and the rest of the country. Let's and Ulaanbaatar, frankly, is kind of like a parasite.
0: Yeah, yeah. Let's talk about the rest of the country. Right. That's so, what interests me.
1: So there you're at half. Yeah. right there. Okay. Right? So 1.5 million, 1.5 million. Right. Then it gets to be a little bit of a thumb suck as to how many of those folks are still nomadic or herdsmen. Who don't live in sohms or IMAGs like you saw? So Marone here is one of the larger sohms in the country. And that,
0: when you say sohm, for other people who don't know, this is a, like, a IMAG city centers.
1: So the the country or... divided uh, nationally into the the federal system or the national system, and then the states, which are IMAGs, and then the counties, which are SOMS. Oh, okay. Thank you. So the IMAG center here is is Marone in this particular IMAG, and Marone has between thirty and fifty thousand people in it. Oh,
0: that many.
1: Okay. Um, and then. You know, the SOM centers will have, you know, a thousand, fifteen hundred in them. So if you take all those numbers, you know, my guess is there's maybe, I don't know, somebody could tell you and someone will listen to this and go, oh, Mark, you're so crazy. It's more or less, but I don't know, 750,000 maybe nomads yet. So- but nomad is really weird in Mongolia because if you're in the Gobi, those people will move six to ten times a year.
0: And what are they moving for? Harvest?
1: No, no, no. They're, they're all herdsmen. So very few Mongolians uh, grow anything. It's changing, but, but very few Mongolians grow anything, you know, wheat or hay or anything, anything like that. Folks are, are moving because of their herds. They're, yeah. they're, it's all about in search of grass and, and, and water. Right. And so in the Gobi, where uh, resources are tighter, they'll move more often. Uh, around here... People will will move two, three, maybe four times a year. Um, So they'll have their calving, uh, lambing um, area that they'll be in. They'll have their grass-cutting area um, that they'll be in. They'll have their summer pastures, their fall pastures, whatever it is. And everybody kind of knows. There's a traditional system there, and everybody kind of knows whose is whose and what's what. And they generally won't um, encroach. On, on each space. other. Yeah, yeah generally. But and then in other places, there's like, uh, in the eastern part, in the Buryats, they'll move twice. That's it? Yeah, that's it. They'll have a winter place and a summer place. For the most part, because we're way up in the north. Right. And so there's a little bit more of the northern influence. Some people have cabins, But for the most part, it's just a hushar. It's a corral with a simple lean-to. And then they'll have their gear set up there. And okay. that's what they use for calving and lambing. Then you'll see big piles of dung that they'll burn in the fire during the winter and stuff
0: like that. Right. Okay. When you came in to do all this conservation yeah. work... Mm-hmm.
1: No, I came here to ride horses across the country and got looped into doing conservation work. After
0: you got lassoed into doing (laughs) conservation work. Um, And you were making some of the land into parks. How did Mm -hmm. that affect the people?
1: Right. Oh, yeah. You know, Mongolians are really interesting. Um, For the most part, Mongolians venerate nature. You know, they have a long-standing... ...tradition of living in harmony with the land. Yeah, yeah. It's being lost um, over time, or it's changing over time. and mm-hmm. yeah, Maybe that sounds the right. word. It's getting more complicated sure. over time as people's desires are shifting... As their desires for different material goods, because they're watching
0: Dallas to get a better feel for what America is, you know, it's
1: whatever it is, you know, human nature, whatever, you know, whatever it is. But you know, people want TVs and they want better education for their kids, and they want a motorcycle rather than riding a horse all the time. And it's kind of a natural progression, you know. For those of us from the outside, kind of romantic and nostalgic about it, you know, and I definitely am, you know. But but you know. For the most part, people here, they've mixed animism with Buddhism. And so there's a traditional, as I said, veneration for nature. For instance, uh, Mongolians normally will wear upturned toes on the front of their boots.
0: Yeah, why is that?
1: So they don't disturb the
0: earth. (gasps)
1: Right. And they uh, fish is an interesting one because we're talking about fish here. And I guess people listening to this podcast are probably way more interested in fish than the history of Mark. But, you know, fish are the first rung of reincarnation in Buddhism. And because they're considered insects, insects don't blink. Fish don't blink. They're insects. And so fish are a holy species in, in Mongolia. Wait, wait. So, like, so
0: insects are a holy species here? Yes. So they insects, don't like, swap species, mosquitoes or anything?
1: Yes, they do. Because okay. it's complicated. They live on the earth and they they hunt and there are mongolians who fish. It's a myth that mongolians never fish, but there are some that that, that fish, etc. But I'm just, you know, we're sort of trying to come up with some examples of yeah, yeah. how mongolians traditionally respect the Earth. In fact, if you give a toast, like a traditional a Mongolian toast, if you have a shot of vodka, they will generally, or arhi, or whatever your your drink of choice is, uh, fermented mare's milk. You know, they will take their ring finger, they will dip it in there, and they will flick a small bit of the alcohol to to Father Sky and also to Mother Earth, and and so there is a a, a predisposition mm-hmm. amongst Mongolian people to want to protect the landscape. And, you know, the, the government of Mongolia, who I've worked with forever, you know, fully understands this. In fact, the, the government of Mongolia has declared that they fully intend to protect over 30% of the the, the territory of Mongolia within some sort of conservation okay. um, area. They're only up to about 15% so far. But that's immense. You know, if you look yeah. at like, some of the protected areas that, that we've worked on in the past in, in this country... The Han Hinti, including the Buffer Zone, is 2.4 million hectares is one example. You know Yellowstone National Park, 800,000 hectares. Yeah, so the, it's three times the size of Yellowstone. What's
0: the percent in the States? I don't know. If it's 30% here, I'd be curious to know what it is in North America. I don't or know. In, in the United States, anyway. Yeah, I don't know. I'm from Canada. <laughs> oh, you tricky American. <laughs> Okay, so then, okay, so people who still wanted to live in the parks could. They didn't need permits. It's not like you no. came in and changed everything and they hate you. No,
1: no, not at all. And it wasn't me. You know, it's not me. It's right. The, it's the government of Mongolia. and It's yeah. just me trying to help the government of Mongolia get its, you know, mind around its own objectives. Yeah, yeah. I and mean, protected areas, you know, folks are geek out about this stuff. But, you know, there's you know, the IUCN and others. And, you know, there are, areas have a, there's a, you know, For the rest of the world, in the U.S. and and perhaps in Canada, you have crown lands and whatnot. Mm -hmm. You know, for all of us, you know... Mongolia, 100% of the, of the ground is owned by the government, but for some small patches here or there that are leased out, or like the Hashars we were discussing, you can own a certain, like I think it's a half hectare around a Hashar, you can have in fee simple or a long term lease, depending on. But for the most part, all of the ground is owned by the, by the government. So, really, when we're talking about protected areas in this country, we're talking about places where there's a heightened level of land use where the ultimate value of that land use is determined by the long-term conservation of nature.
0: Okay.
1: So they have kind of a a spectrum of various types of protected areas. For instance, they have the Great Gobi National Park, or strictly protected areas, 5.5 million hectares. And it is an area where only visitors The only visitors are supposed to be scientists and and people like that. That's a strictly protected area. There's very few nomads that that live in in that area. National parks in in this country have a different situation where people can graze in them and and whatnot, but there's no hunting, perhaps, that's allowed in there. Or grazing is managed to make sure that overgrazing um, doesn't occur.
0: Coming up, Mark and I talk less landscape and more fish. Again, please take a moment to check out Luke Weiser's custom bamboo fly rods at www.lukeweiser.com. Even if you're not in the market for a new rod, it's worth having a look. I know that I've never seen anything quite like it.
1: We're at, right now, we started, we were above the 50th before, but we're right about the 48th parallel right now, which is the temperate zone, which is awesome. There's very few places left in the temperate zone where you can stitch together a float trip uh, 14 days or 15 days or 10 days or whatever it is and have consistently good fishing mm-hmm. in a place that is not polluted, not populated, nobody else around,
0: you know, it's no infrastructure. Mark. The yeah. only people we've seen are nomads yeah. living in Gares mm. who are living off the land. I mean, we hung out with that one family in the morning. And, yeah, yeah. you know, they're sitting there making yak butter and feeding you yak milk. Yeah. And just truly surviving. It was so amazing to see.
1: Well, I think in the last 5 days we haven't seen anybody. We have seen no one but us.
0: Right. And the pollution, like you said, I mean, it's obviously there's the occasional vodka bottle, yeah. but like really, that's the extent of it. No people, no no development. There's nothing. Right. And then and then what do we see today? The the burial grounds. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. The burial grounds. There's people buried here from you said when the, for-
1: you know fifteen to sixteen hundred years ago.
0: I just can't think of anywhere else on Earth. We had lunch today. In a place where the monks used to hide out, I guess when there was all that during the
1: the the Yellow Hat Revolution. So
0: enter the white guy into the (laughs) into the fishery. Where does the fishing come in now?
1: (laughs) Oh man, that's terrible! That's not a white guy.
0: I know. Well, I was going to try to podcast a Mongolian because I wanted to give street cred to somebody who was Mongolian. Oh sure, but the more I researched and. Dove into who the guy was, Mark. You're the guy. <laughs> you just you are the guy. Tell me about it. So the timeline goes,
1: right? You know, so the fishing stuff. You know, as I said, I, you know, I, I grew up fishing and I love fly fishing. And you know, as much as you tease me about my made up spay casts, which <laughs> are you. highly effective,
0: I noticed
1: it <laughs> <They> looked great. <laughs> I and mean, we're going to YouTube it. Now just we're wanted big. to put a name to it as well. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> the knucklehead. Anyway, um. They, uh, you know, to 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 I don't know to spin it as as fast as possible. You know, I I've been fishing here forever, and I'm I'm the old guy on the block now when it comes to fishing. My my buddy Gido Rar, if Gido is even listening to this. Gido came over with a bunch of his friends in 1990. I knew in the interim. We we had met because I um, he was roommates with my best friend from Montana at Yale, and so you know we we talked about fishing in Mongolia and, and all the rest. But I I've been fishing here a, a ton, just recreationally. And then my other really good friends, the the Vermillions, um, started up Sweetwater. I helped them get that started there partner here, their Mongolian partner here is actually my old fishing buddy um, from from days gone by and I helped them when I was working for, it's a long story, but I was working for the UN here for a long time. I lived here from 93 through 95, eventually rode horses across the country, went to Lake Baikal and bought horses and came down here and rode out to the Kazakhstan border, three and a half months in the saddle, blah 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 it was a wonderful, wonderful trip But um, We need to make a movie about your life No <laughs>
0: continue. <Sorry>.
1: Anyway <laughs> Anyway, I eventually finished up law school finally. And I ended up working a ton in the Himalayas in Bhutan and then a lot down in Southern Africa. So there's this sort of this period where I was going from Montana to to the Himalaya, to Southern Africa, to Mongolia, and then back to Montana. My normal job, working as a as a consultant for, I worked for uh, large scale donors like USAID, the UN, the World Bank, um, on large scale conservation programs. I ended up down in Southern Africa working on this community based natural resources management stuff, working with local communities, trying to create incentives for them to conserve biodiversity through uh, the use, sustainable use of biodiversity, either through, Tourism, photographic tourism, um, or hunting tourism or their own consumption of, of resources. Uh, the Germans up here, I, the GTZ, was trying to get something similar off of, the, off of the ground, and so they hired me to come up to, to back to Mongolia to try to do that. And I, and I worked with them a bunch, and it just wasn't resonating. It just wasn't happening with them. And the, the way that I hoped that it would happen, I thought, you know what? I'm just going to do this myself. Mongolia's given me a lot. You know, it really is. It's really launched my career. It's a, it, it's some kind of kind of a second home. A lot of friends here, etc. Really helped me grow up and mature in in many ways. I thought, you know what, I'm gonna see if I can do this myself. Just see if I can I can work on putting in place a community-based natural resource management program with my own funding, my own, I did not have any money, so my own sweat equity and work with local communities and use fly fishing as a catalyst for conservation. To look at how we can look, value taimen in the river more than valuing taimen on the dinner plate or sold to, you know, whatever, somebody who wants to, 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 to buy
0: a... By attainment. And why did you choose fishing over the hunting? Is it because you can catch and release the fishing?
1: Yeah, the you fish? know, in and, and, and hunting, international sport hunting is really not interesting to me. I come from a, I, I hunt a lot. Um and uh, back home, but I come from and I, sport hunting has its niche. I don't don't get me wrong at, at all. I am supportive of sport hunting done in the in, in the right way. But for me personally, like my father came over here and shot an elk in the in the mid 1990s. I guess I was living here 93, 94, 95. I can't remember exactly, but he shot an elk, big big bull, and it was great. I was living here, you know. We butchered it, and I was able to to eat that elk, you know, for the for the winter. Right. Worked out great with my own personal ethics. Um, if just for me personally, I, I, if I shoot it, I eat it. Yeah, you know that's that's part of the game um, for me. I get it. I have a lot of friends who are are trophy hunters, international trophy hunters. You know that's it's it's not a problem done properly. Also, the perspective in or the the perception, I mean, in Mongolia is uh, often if you're a hunter, you can't be a conservationist. Okay. Because they have a different, you know, we, we grew up with a different model in the in the U.S. and in Canada in many ways, mm-hmm. where really the driver of conservation in many places is hunting. Montana is a perfect example, you know, where hunters are conservationists. Perception here is a little bit different. Fly fishing, and catch and release fly fishing in particular, kind of um, runs a thin line, uh, between those, because as you said, you know, it's catch and release. Did the
0: locals fly fish? Did no. anybody here fly fish? No, not in the day. Were there any other North Americans who had come over and or Europeans who had come over? Ido
1: you know, and some of his buddies came over in 1990. So they didn't
0: come over with you.
1: No, no, they came over in night. I'm gonna put some wood on the fire. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh they came over in nineteen ninety.
0: Okay, got
1: it. On a I can't remember, I have to ask Ido about it. He came up on the train, he had a great little adventure. And, and they got some taming, for sure. Um, but no, and and you know, and then it was me. But again, you know, I just brought my fly rod over here, literally, to feed myself. So, so I needed a Mongolian partner or somebody we can work with. And I didn't want to make this a me thing, right? So this is really a. Man, it, we don't need to go into the legalities of it.
0: No, no, it's fine. But, but but before you go down that mm-hmm. route, so Mongolian partner with the initiative being
1: fly fishing as a catalyst for conservation. That's really the 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 the, the catchword there. Um, and so we started out very small to gain the trust of the local communities and to do what we could afford to, to do.
0: When you say we, what are you calling yourself back then? It's, it's Mongolia River
1: Outfitters is okay. the name so it's, of the company.
0: It's always been
1: Mongolia River yeah, Outfitters. Yeah. yeah, yeah, Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, Mongolia River Outfitters starts out very small. It's... You know, me with some Mongolian buddies and a couple of rafts and rowing a couple of clients around figuring out taimen fishing. And also, at the same time, de- generating trust with local communities. Local communities are really skeptical about foreigners showing up on the river and fishing. They have a long history of poaching, primarily by you know, there's certain, certain countries which tended to come here. And those countries tended to have anglers who were disrespectful of taimen and killed the taimen. Right. And it was a big problem. Big problem. And it's still a problem on the edges. It's not a main street problem, but it continues to be a problem on the, on the edges that we fight against constantly. So any foreigner, the perception from any foreigner of the, the Mongolians was... What are they doing to our tamen? We I mean, had these
0: fish live up to how old?
1: Uh, so Taman biology. Um, a you know, it's uh, my buddy Zeb and Sudeep, uh Sadiq Chandra from the University of Nevada Reno, and Zeb Hogan from National Geographic, um, and and Olaf and a number of other people. they their colleagues and cohort. They've really uh, led the charge. In terms of understanding taimen biology in, in Mongolia, so all credit to them for for this. But generally, mm-hmm. and I'll, I'll probably you know muddle a few of the the factoids here. But generally, uh, Mongolian uh, taimen, Hucho-Hucho um, taimen,
0: is that the actual? Name that's part? the Latin
1: name. Okay, thank you for them. You know the the large, world's largest salmon, biggest trout in the world. So yeah. the biggest one here you go, drum roll please. You know, sixty inch. Yeah. 60-inch right? trout that comes to the surface. Oh, it
0: scares me because their heads are so big. And
1: they tailwalk. And they slam <laughs> flies like an anvil. It's like you're throwing the biggest boulder in the river on top of your fly, and it explodes.
0: People telling me that they don't run or jump. Like, when I told everybody that <laughs> was coming in, like, oh, they just dog down. I thought it would be cool to catch a big one, hmm. Okay, mark. They are like tarpon. They flare those gills. They yeah, yeah. do tail walk. They run. They My fingers, you can see them right now. They're so burned <laughs> up. i am wearing tape on my hands all day, all week. Yeah. They are ass kickers. And I'm actually a little bit afraid of them. <laughs> I landed that 48-incher yeah,
1: yeah. this trip. Four-foot-long fish.
0: I it's phenomenal. I can't. Right? I mean, I, was, I shook for an hour after that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't fish again after that, that day. Because I I was actually a little bit scared. And you said that fish <laughs> could be my age, or okay, you know, so 20 to 30 years. Here's
1: the way it works. Mm, ballpark.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, a Taman will grow 10 centimeters per year mm-hmm. for the first seven years. So a 70-centimeter taman, right, sub-30 inches taemin, is seven years old and it's just reached sexual maturity. So at seven... They're able to to jump in the red and and do their thing. A major league team, and we consider anything you know a meter or forty inches. You know that's a that's a trophy fish. You know that fish can be pushing twenty years. A really really big fish, like you know you caught a really nice fish at forty eight inches. That one you're probably in that in that thirty plus year that's bracket. Crazy. And a fifty year old fish. I mean a fifty inch fish. Some people talk about 50-year-old Taman. I don't know. I don't know. But, you know, 35, 40, 45, 50. You're talking, as I say, you know, the Beatles' White Album. Yeah. (laughs) Now that fish came out of the red when the Beatles released the White Album.
0: It's insane. It's phenomenal, right? It's insane. Okay, so before I go down the biology track, and I know we're fighting time because of dinner, but Mongolia River Outfitters. Yeah. So you start...
1: MRL. Right, so we started this this little entity as a mechanism to to, to drive conservation, and, and it grows and grows and grows. But what we're finding is, and we as we're growing, we're, we're sort of identifying what the problems are. Okay. Much of the problems we're seeing are, as I said, all of that stuff that we perceived as potential problems when we were setting up the protected area system in the 1990s, all came to fruition. Okay. Right? And a lot of that really drove a spike in wealth, particularly with urban Mongolians. Right, Much of the wealth in Mongolia is concentrated within, I don't know, 12 blocks of the center of town Maybe. near the Capitol building there. right, and, and outside of that, people are really poor. Inside of that, they're really rich. I mean really
0: rich. Yeah, I noticed that.
1: Phenomenally rich. Yeah they got idle time on their hands. So what do they do? They take their black land cruisers, and they cruise out to these rivers, and they go fishing. They're not really educated about fishing, and there's groups like the Taimen Fund with Charlie Kahn. Those guys are doing awesome work with educating these urban anglers, and there's a huge sea change that's happened in the last five years, more or less a, you know, a realization and understanding and appreciation of catch and release and fly fishing. Big fly fishing culture that's blowing up now much because of you know much credit to, to those folks as well as the vermillions you know the vermillions have done an outstanding job of driving conservation you know in but driving my world. it how
0: besides just educating the public the the local public right. uh, the importance of tourism and economics and and conservation right how are you guys driving how are you driving this is it from a financial stance i know that we all pay a fee can you just kind of walk walk me through how it's well let coming? me back
1: it up even more than sure. that if, well, I, if i could for a second um because so what we're all finding on these rivers and you know we're all all of us share a, a deep seated concern for rivers and wild places and taimen and taimen represent wilderness in Mongolia. You've got a 50-year-old fish, this ancient fish that relies upon a watershed that is pristine. If that watershed gets disturbed, the tainment's gone. If you kill a 50-year-old fish, it takes 50 years for another one, you know, to take its place, or decades for another one to take its place. Tainment at one time occurred all the way from the Danube to Hokkaido. I don't know what that means. Uh, From all the way from Eastern Europe to Japan.
0: Oh, yeah? Yeah. Because oh, yeah, I've heard of stories of them being in Germany. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I... ab-
1: absolutely. You know, and, and as time and development has progressed, their habitat has been constrained to a few of these most remote and most pristine river systems. So if you're able to protect taman, you're able to protect some of the most pristine and amazing watersheds left in the northern hemisphere. In, in, in my opinion, particularly Mongolia or maybe Russia or Qaeda or Sakhalin or these other places with Wild Salmon Center and others are, are working. The problem, the problem for all of us, the challenge was in the in the late 1990s, early 2000s, was it as these oligarchs, other people were people were getting very wealthy, a lot of them were coming out to these rivers and they were fishing and they didn't have the ethics and they were killing fish. So they would show up, my, our other operation is very well established, been around for a long time, and uh, people show up there, two bottles of vodka. They find a local person who is a fisherman, and there are local fishermen. And they say, "Hey, dude, take us out to the river, show us where the taimen are, and we'll give you two bottles of vodka." And so these guys go, that would "Yeah, explain a lot. Okay. that's awesome." So they go out and they show them the the taimen. These you know, the rich guys wouldn't know any better. Yeah, you know, they they kill the taimen, give the local guy two bottles of vodka. Thanks, great weekend. See you later. Well, you'd end up with a you know with a dead taimen. So we said, okay, let's figure out a way to start stream site education to improve how everybody understands taman biology. And let's improve how people perceive the value of Taman and see if we can, with our tourism, try to drive some of that. So we said, and it's a long story, but I teamed up, we teamed up with WWF. That's what they do. They do conservation. So we said, okay, WWF, World Wildlife Fund, a guy named Darren Collins, wonderful guy, Chimid Orchard, others. We said, let's work in partnership with you. You guys are the NGO, you do conservation. We do fishing. We do the fishing, we do the, 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 we all do conservation, but we do the, 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 the fishing, the marketing, we bring in the tourists. Community, you help us to protect the river. And we'll continue to provide you with economic incentives to conserve the, the, the fishery. And so it became a three-way partnership, sort of a government community, uh, private enterprise, and NGO partnership to protect a watershed.
0: We're not talking two staff here, because right now this week there's... Four of us. Yeah. Plus you guys. So there's what? Six six of us. Say six or seven of it's us. It's a lightweight. Yes. Yeah. How many staff are there?
1: Oh, I don't I've, I've lost track at this I mean, point. I'm I mean, at like, forty. The more the merrier. It is. Every surreal. every person we hire, it creates a potential fish conservation officer. Exactly. Every single one. Yeah. So what we've done is we took those the, the local fishermen, we work with WWF and we said, okay, let's let's start out with a with a program of public awareness. So it was awesome. We had some of our guests came, including Perkins from Orvis and and, uh, some others. And we said, this is what we want to do. And they were behind it. A lot of these folks provided some nice financial support for us.
0: Where does the financial support go? It goes
1: through WWF. At that point, it went through WWF, and I can explain. Now we work with a number of different NGOs. Mm -hmm. It's grown substantially from this point. So we worked with WWF. We worked with a group called Rare. We started a pride campaign, a tame and pride campaign, Mm -hmm. working with people within the watershed of the Onon, the other river where we work. And we said, okay, how do we help people understand that these fish, which once occurred from here all the way to there, are only occurring in a few specific places, and you are lucky enough to have them. You've got this 50-year-old fish, and it's so much more valuable in the river than on the dinner plate, or you know for two bottles of vodka, and we can help you put a value on that as an incentive to conserve that, that, that species. So the money's going to education, really. It goes to all sorts of stuff. Okay. You know, it's, it goes to all sorts of stuff. It goes to schools. It goes to better understanding of team in biology. It goes to the fishing club. So we took all these folks who were quote-unquote poachers and working with WWF and Rare, people who um, were uh, the folks who received the two bottles of vodka, said, okay, how many are you in each of these communities? Identified them. And there weren't that many. There's like 15 here, 10 there, whatever. We work in six different counties on, on that particular river. We identified those those people. So, okay, we're going to organize you as a fishing club, and now we're going to create what we're going to call a Taimen Sanctuary. And in that Taimen Sanctuary, here's the deal: we will, with this Mong this National Mongolian Company, MRO, right? We will manage international anglers. We'll we'll market it. We'll provide service. We'll hire local people. We'll do all the stuff that you see. We'll bring international guides in who can train Mongolian guides, and you fished with a bunch of our Mongolian guides this week. They're they? awesome. It's fantastic. Unbelievable. In yeah. these guys none of them like fly fished. They yeah, are ten so years ago. talented, and now they rock. Right. So we'll do all of that stuff. Right, and then you guys protect the. River, yeah, whatever. Well, this 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 melange of 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 partnership amongst all of us. And the team of Sanctuary rules are very simple. You know, it's catch and release. It's fly fish only. Three-kilometer setback, so wild and scenic status. Within that three kilometers, there's no commercial forestry. There's no mining. There's no permanent infrastructure development for tourism. Uh, there's no motorboats. Uh, there's no commercial offtake of water. There's sort of a, a, a long list of, of things that basically establish the river as wild scenic status and it's about over there's about 300 kilometers of river 400 kilometers of of river so it's a lot of creek mm-hmm. and then you local ex-poachers you become the fly fishing clubs or the fishing clubs and then you are responsible for any uh, national angler who comes in. So if I come from Moulin and I go to that river, I've got to go to the fishing club, and I've got to get my permit from the fishing club, and then a member of the fishing club has to accompany me to the river and make sure that I'm following the rules while I'm fishing. So they act as part guide and part river keeper for all of the national anglers. And that becomes a farm team for bumping up to become a guide for the international operation that runs out of the company out of out of Mongolia, all within the auspices of this Taman sanctuary concept, I haven't done an outstanding job of explaining that. But there's so many the different facets.
0: That's the problem. Is there's so many different layers to this program. Right. So is it working?
1: Yeah. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. So we have really. We. Um, okay. Not super rigorous, but fairly rigorous data that we that we keep. So we can much like an Atlantic salmon fishery. We keep uh, records of how many fish are caught and sizes and, and all the rest. And if you look, this operation, you know that that you've experienced is sort of our new baby, right? We're taking the same models. What river are we on? The, I'm not. I'm not saying. Oh, I, you know, yes. It's okay. like who does that? Yeah. <laughs> who, who in? god's green earth i grew up in montana it's like oh, the dumbest thing you could possibly <laughs> do it's like oh this is where we fish so you this don't advertise you, you don't advertise never it? we awesome. never mention i didn't know that i told you never. i
0: i never i didn't want to look you guys up before i came thank you very much yeah, yeah. i just wanted to i just wanted to show up and roll with it yeah yeah so you guys don't have it on your website you don't no advertise way. the name no way cheers man no, smart, I,
1: that's it's terrible you know, it's terrible because it's hard enough for the Mongolians to keep people off the river who aren't, you know, you have to have a permit you cannot as a foreigner you cannot come to Mongolia and fish unless you come with a legal, uh, legally authorized entity so the fishing clubs are organized as a 501c3 or a Mongolian equivalent of it, so they're an NGO they're a non-profit group, so they work entirely as a club, so MRO takes care of international anglers, they take care of national anglers, there's a limit on the total number of international anglers that can come, there's a limit in principle on the number of national anglers that can come, but if you're a local, if you're a county resident, there's no limit. So there's sort of a three-tiered system, all of which is functionally directed towards the conservation of the Taman Sanctuary. And that is all directed towards the long-term survival of these fish. Then as I started to say... We've kept, and you said, does that work? And it's all
0: a... Well, you're always going to learn.
1: It's all a work in progress. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You know, nothing is perfect. You know, when, when, you, when you talk about it in this way, it's like, oh, it's a work in progress. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, and it's difficult. As the Mongolians say, it's Hitsu.
0: Okay. You know,
1: it's Hitsu. And it's getting better all the time. It's not getting worse. And our records show that. So we keep... Very meticulous records, um, uh, catch data. Just like it, yeah, like I, I said, noticed just, that, just like on an Atlantic was... salmon fishery. It's like who caught what, where, how long was it, etc., etc., et cetera, et, cetera, et cetera. And we have tagging programs and genetics programs. And we kind of stopped the tagging. Now we have facial recognition stuff. Taimen have a uh, facial pattern with spots on them. So you can use this wild ID program. It's developed out of, the, out of Dartmouth um, where you can ID the individual fish by its spotting patterns. Because they have like
0: a brown trout sort of. Yeah. If you had to explain as a species what they looked like to someone who had never seen it, mm. what would you explain a taimen to look like? I don't know. It's like a weird cross between a brown shimmy. trout and an Atlantic salmon. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, with a really bright red tail.
0: Oh, they're so cool. The tail is stunning. So cool. It's like
1: the sexy part. It.
0: It's like, yeah, oh, I like
1: the tail. There's a butt on that <laughs> thing. I <laughs> would go there. Moving but yes. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, no, um, so we have really meticulous catch data yeah. on the other river over about a 15-year period. And you can see where we've gone from, oh, man, it's really hard to find a taimen. To the last couple of years, we've averaged, I'm not going to say numbers, but a lot mm-hmm. of in per week.
0: Mark? The um, doka is getting very frustrated with us because dinner is getting cold. Let's go. Is there anything that you would like to add or to ask me?
1: No. I'm not sure that I did such a wonderful job of explaining things. And there's a lot of details. And there's so many people who deserve credit for this stuff. It's not about me. There's a whole pantheon of folks who are concerned about taming and taming conservation and conservation of, of wild rivers. But the bottom line is this all depends. And this is not a sales pitch. I say it all the time, it depends upon anglers choosing to come to Mongolia. If we don't have anglers coming to Mongolia, we can't create the incentives that are required in order to protect these rivers.
0: And that concludes this episode of Anchored. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to leave a review about Anchored on iTunes.